Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile, here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry, and it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest print issue, you can go to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply type your details in and we'd be delighted to send you a free copy of our latest edition. But today on The Profile, I'm speaking to John Stevens. John is the National Director of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, FIEC. He's also one of the pastors of Christ Church Market Harbour and is on the Word Alive event organising team. He teaches on courses at Oak Hill Theological College, Edinburgh Theological Seminary, Union School of Theology and the Cornhill Training Course. And he's the author of Knowing Our Times, How British Culture Impacts Our Mission. John, welcome to the programme. Sam, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. So first question, you're heading up the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. What does the word evangelical mean? Well, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches is a group of about 600 churches around the country, and they're united by core doctrinal convictions that evangelicals have held for the better part of 200 years or so. So evangelicalism particularly came out of the revival movements in the 18th and the 19th century, and a number of key characteristics have been identified that sort of unite evangelicals and a defining of evangelicalism. So um, our our confidence that the Bible is the word of God and is authoritative in every area of life. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It makes God known to us. It tells us how we should live as God's people. So evangelicals are fundamentally Bible people because they believe the Bible is where they hear God speaking. Secondly, focused on the cross. Um, our, Our fundamental conviction is that humanity is fallen, that we've rebelled and sinned against God and are under God's judgment and need to be rescued. And the way that rescue is brought about is by Jesus willingly coming and dying on the cross in our place having lived a perfect life so that everybody who trusts in him um, can be forgiven their sins are cleansed they're declared to be righteous with God because of the sacrifice that he made that takes away the wrath of God so those two fundamental convictions the Bible um, and the cross um, a a conviction that um, you need to be regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit to new spiritual life so people are not just born Christians and to be a Christian is not just to believe intellectually certain doctrines or to engage in religious rituals but there's a need for a personal converting work of the Spirit to bring you to new life um, in the Lord Jesus Um, and a desire to want to spread the good news of the Lord Jesus to others so those are reflected in Mm. our doctrine basis and that's what makes us evangelicals that's a that's a really thorough well-put definition of a term so why is it that when i ask other people who identify as evangelicals you often get a bit more of a kind of wishy-washy less of an answer I think there are possibly two things happening there. One, the term evangelical has often been misused and a number of people are embarrassed about the term evangelical. They associate it with a kind of a corrupt Christianity or a cheesy Christianity. So for some, there's an allergy to evangelicalism because perhaps it's shaped by their perceptions of kind of American abuses of evangelicalism. So some are suspicious of the word. I think in honesty for others, it's because they've moved away from some of those core doctrinal convictions that have always defined evangelical. And so therefore they want to 
to reinterpret the term in the way that incorporates a broader range of people. So evangelicals have never claimed they're the only people who are Christians. There are Christians who hold um, other convictions. But evangelicals would say that, that, that what they believe is the biblical apostolic definition of what it means to be Christian. But in every generation, some people within evangelicalism have wanted to adopt a, a broader understanding of what it means to be an evangelical, and that waters down the definition. I'd love to come back to some of that a little bit later on, but uh, here on the profile, we always like to start by asking about a person's early life and a bit of their testimony. So uh, you grew up in Birmingham. Tell me a bit more about that. Yes, I was born and brought up in Birmingham. I lived there until I was uh, 18. I brought up in a, a family that was not a Christian family. Although I was taken to Sunday school as a child, we went to a United Reformed church that was basically a liberal church. My parents thought that church going was a good thing. Sunday school was something that you ought to do. They came from that generation. So I was dragged along to church somewhat mm-hmm. unhappily until I was about 15. Um, but it wasn't a Christian family. My, my parents would have said that there were some good moral values in Christianity, but they would have regarded the Bible as a sort of a book made up by people writing stories to teach a morality. You didn't mm-hmm. take it too seriously. And certainly religion wasn't at the centre of our lives in any, in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to uh, school, and at school I had a, a teacher, an RS teacher, who was a Christian. And it was probably in that context that I first heard the good news about Jesus mm. being explained and understood a little bit more right. about what Christianity really is. Um, but when I was in my sixth form, I was studying uh, kind of English. We were studying various kind of nihilist literature, um, a little bit of uh, kind of uh, uh, waiting for Godot and other works like that. And I had a strongly atheistic English teacher mm-hmm. who told us that to follow Christianity was simply a crutch for the weak, wow. um, that atheism was authentic and real. And I was taken in by that. And so by the time yeah. I left university, I was a convinced atheist. Wow. Were, were they quite uh, overt, even in a sort of teaching scenario, to kind of put forward an atheist worldview? Well, I guess um, in those kinds of lessons, we were debating a whole variety of different views, and he was expressing his personal mm. view. And he was one of those teachers who was what you might say one of the cooler teachers in the school. <laughs> um, and he was a great teacher, and I learned a huge amount from him. And he would share what his personal views were. But we were looking through literature that particularly addressed those kinds of issues. What is the meaning of life? Is there any purpose? Why are we here? Um, how do we um, uh, sort of live our lives? Mm. So actually, it was all connected with the philosophy of the literature that we were studying. So it wasn't as if he was using lessons to evangelize for an atheist perspective Mm. it actually very much flowed from what it was that we were studying at that particular time Mm. so then by the time you get to university you're studying law and i think it was at university actually you became a christian wasn't it it was from the age of about 14 i'd wanted to be a barrister so i'd gone to a school careers fair and met somebody who was a barrister very young and i felt from, from that age that that would be a career that would suit me i think sort of professionally arguing seemed an attractive uh, <laughs> role for me to uh, undertake so for quite a long time i'd been looking to do law i got into cambridge um to do um uh, law and went to a uh, trinity hall which is a college in cambridge and really from day one uh, i met a number of christians so there were a couple of christians actually on, on my course in my year at my college and over a period of time I got to know them and they shared their faith with me Mm. Um, in fact on my very first day at college they dragged me along to a Christian Union breakfast which I rather reluctantly went to Mm -hmm. but that was the beginning of engaging with Christianity and engaging with a number of friends who were Christians so over a number of years or over a number of months they started to share their faith Mm. with me they invited me along to a number of Christian Union events where I heard the gospel explained And I began to see the difference that Christ made to their lives. And I could see that there was something different about them because they were following the Lord Jesus in terms of um, who they understood themselves to be, how they related to one another, which I found attractive. 
And so over a period of time, I began to understand what the gospel was. And I began to feel that Jesus was calling me to Mm. respond to him. I began to understand that I was a sinner in need of forgiveness. I began to understand that he really was the Lord who'd risen from the dead. I began to understand that he died for me and began to understand what it meant to follow him. So um, I really came under conviction as a result of hearing the gospel explained and seeing the lives of my Christian friends. Um, But I reached a point at which I really didn't want to become a Christian. That Mm -hmm. didn't fit with my plan. So I had my career mapped out ahead of me. This was the 1980s, the height of Thatcherism. We were all looking forward to successful careers, earning significant quantities of money. Um, And I knew that following Christ would mean a very significant change of direction and life and what I was living for. And frankly, that's not what I wanted at that point. So I found myself spending about 18 months trying to fight God off. (laughs) So I was conscious that Christ was calling me. I knew that that would involve change, but it wasn't a change that I wanted. And so it was only really at the beginning of my third year, after a a long period of struggle and fight, that I finally realized that if Jesus is Lord, you really have no option but to submit to him. So when I went back at the beginning of my third year, I sort of met up with one of my friends and said, I need to become a Christian. Hmm. And he explained to me how to become a Christian and how to pray to invite Jesus into your life to be Lord. And actually, it was the next morning that I simply prayed, um, submitting my life to Christ. So it's been a long period of um, seeing their lives and hearing their witness. Yeah, Tell me more about that 18 month period of struggle where it sounds like you kind of knew the truth deep down, but you were reluctant to to finally uh, um, yield to it because you knew that it would cost you something. What, tell me more about specifically what it would cost you because there would be plenty of people who think, well, you know, it's it's fine. You can be a Christian. You can earn a lot of money. So it can't just be a money issue. What was it that uh, was the fight going on? There? Well, I think it was a variety of things going on. I knew that uh, it would be very difficult for my parents. Um, uh, I'd kind of would be changing my values completely. I, I knew that they would sort of sort of see this as a kind of a, a zealotry that was um, uh, somehow damaging or dangerous. So I was fearful as to how they would respond. I'd been going out with a girl that I'd met at school for about sort of two or three years by that stage and so that relationship was important to me and I knew that that might be in peril if I became a a Christian. Um, I think I had an inkling that if I was going to follow Christ it would mean a wholehearted commitment. Mm. So for me um, every area of life I've thrown myself into Mm. I've thrown myself into wholeheartedly and I think I knew that following Christ would mean the kind of legal ambitions that I had that money orientated um, uh, sort of goal to life would ha- would have to change, and I suspect I had an inkling that it would mean following Christ into some kind of full time Christian ministry. Yes. So, so yes, I, I think for people when they become Christians, there are degrees of change that the Lord requires in their life. So, there's nothing wrong at all with being a Christian lawyer, yeah. serving Christ in that context. I, I just knew in the way that Christ was speaking to me mm. that that wasn't what would be mm. um, involved. So, I knew that there'd be quite a, a lot to give up mm. yes. um, as a result of following Him. It's interesting you say you might. I've had an inkling about being called maybe to some kind of full-time Christian ministry because I know for a long time that wasn't your story for a long time you you were a lawyer uh, for a number of years weren't you so tell me more about that career and where the ministry side of things came in because I think it involves a story of you discovering that you're not an Anglican <laughs> uh, yeah I, yes I, I ended up with a rather accidental career in law that I hadn't expected so after I was converted um, I sort of got involved in a local church got involved in Christian Union I began to be encouraged to think about Christian ministry got involved in some camps where I had some opportunities to use my gifts um, and over a period of time came to a conviction that actually Christian ministry is something that 
I should um, pursue. So rather than going straight to um, sort of uh, train as a barrister or a solicitor, I actually did a postgraduate degree, which was a way of buying an extra year, and then ended up working for a church Mm. um, in Oxford for a year, helping them with their student ministry. And during that time, went forward for selection for Anglican ordination Mm. and got accepted to be trained into the Anglican church. So once I became a Christian, I was taken along to Bible-teaching Anglican churches, Mm. and that was where I was really spiritually nurtured. So it was quite Mm. natural for me to think about serving in the Anglican church. Um, I needed a job to do for a year before going to theological college, Um, and the only thing I was qualified to do without doing more uh, training was to basically teach law in a university. So I got a job teaching law in a university, teaching land law and trusts, which were subjects nobody else really wanted to teach, (laughs) so there were jobs that were available, expecting that I would do that for just a year. But having started that job, uh, for a whole variety of reasons, I discovered that I wasn't an Anglican. Um, My theology developed, my understanding of the different kinds of churches developed. I got involved in helping at a small Baptist church. Um, And to me, um, that theology just made much more sense of what I was reading in the Bible. Um, And so out of a matter of conscience, I felt that I couldn't go forwards into ordination in Mm. the Anglican church. There were too many things I couldn't agree with. Mm. Um, It's it's really interesting because when a lot of people talk about the Anglican church, um, it's been said both its greatest strength and its greatest weakness is that it's a broad church. And and people will say, well, many people who I know are friends with who are Anglicans will say, well, the great thing about our church is we can hold sort of so many different theological opinions opinions and you will talk to one bishop who says one thing and another priest who has a slightly different take on things and um, but we all kind of hold we all kind of hold it together so so what was it about the theological issues that you disagreed on that you felt like being an anglican wasn't the right place for you well firstly i think that i've got lots of good friends who are anglicans and i think they would strongly disagree that the anglican church is a broad church they'd look at the founding documents of the church of england the 39 articles the book of common prayer which articulates a very clear theology of what anglicans should believe and what anglicans around the world believe so i think there are many people in the anglican church who don't really subscribe to what the teachings of the anglican church um, are so the anglican church is clearly a biblical and evangelical church by its foundation. And sadly and tragically, there are plenty of people within the Anglican church who don't hold to its own official beliefs. Um, but my questions were actually about some of that particular theology itself. Mm. So the areas that for me were very significant is I realized that I was a Baptist rather than believing in the baptism of children. Um, I realized I didn't believe in the existence of bishops as a separate order of Christian ministry. So as I read the Bible, there are only two orders of Christian ministry. There are elders and there are deacons in the life of the local church, and there's not a separate office of bishop. The word bishop and the word elder are used synonymously in the New Testament. Um, I realized I didn't believe in the idea of a state church. I think the um, idea of an established church, which in some ways is connected with the state, with the queen as head of that church, is again something that I didn't think was theologically right. And I didn't really believe in the doctrine of priesthood as understood by the Church of England. So the idea that you need to be ordained by a bishop in order to be able to absolve sins and to be able to conduct uh, the Lord's Supper, to conduct communion, seemed to me to be um, not a biblical way Mm. of understanding the nature of Christian ministry. Mm. Um, And then finally, um, given the the Anglican's position on bishops, you have to swear canonical obedience to your bishop. And I would in conscience find that very difficult to do to a bishop who um, isn't upholding the doctrines of the Church of England. So for me, actually it was disagreement with the clear doctrines that the Church of England ought to be holding. So it wasn't a problem of the breadth of the Church of England, it was actually theological disagreement 
with those founding principles mm. of Anglicanism. And in, in Protestant Reformed evangelical history, there have always been a diversity of views on some of those secondary matters. But it seems to me important that you minister in a church context which in conscience you can agree with. So where did you find your home? Well, I found my home really in free Baptist churches, so independent um, uh, Baptist churches um, and ultimately in the FIEC. Now, the FIEC um, isn't exclusively Baptist, but we're all churches that are autonomous, local governing churches. So those churches take a variety of views on secondary issues. Mm. Um, But the particular church that I serve in would be a church that is Baptistic in its practice, but would welcome people from all different backgrounds into the membership of the church. And that's where I'm most happy. Mm. So tell me more about the kind of progression from law into ministry. And I'd love to know uh, as well now if you still find it helpful to have that kind of background in, in church ministry life today. Well, having um, sort of settled in a church, I, w- I was involved in leading local churches um, while working at the same time. So I had an accidental career teaching law that lasted 16 years. I ended up being um, deputy head of the law faculty at the University of Birmingham, which was a big faculty with 800 students, a couple of hundred postgraduates. Um, and I moved to Birmingham um, in 1996. And then having arrived in Birmingham and having a real heart for student ministry and for a kind of a Bible-centred ministry for the city, I and um, a couple of other friends, we planted church church in Birmingham in 1999, which was called City Evangelical Church, based, based in Edgbaston, with a vision to be reaching out to the students, reaching out to the city centre community, training people up for gospel ministry and, and sending them out. And so um, I began that church with them while I was still working at the university. But as church grew, we began with about 25 people, but we grew quite rapidly to 250 or so people over a a number of years. Um, It became impossible to manage um, work Mm. uh, and church. So gradually I became part-time at the university and then eventually became full-time working at the church. In the meantime, I got married and then we had children. So balancing uh, work and church and family (laughs) was just impossible. So, um, yes, I I taught law for 16 years um, and it was a great opportunity. I enjoyed engaging with colleagues. One of the things I miss about being in full-time Christian ministry is the day-by-day engagement with non-Christians who are interested in debating the news, ideas, Mm. um, opportunities to share Christ with them. I think that's one of the disadvantages of not being located in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And, of course, for a church that had a significant student congregation it was actually helpful to be involved in the life of the university as well to be able to understand something of what was happening for students in in their experience Mm. and uh, that church continues today to this day doesn't it the church that you you planted and and led for some time so what was that sort of transition like I mean you must be really pleased to see it continuing to thrive but also I guess it's difficult to hand a church on when it's something that was so close to your heart yeah I was pastor there co-pastor there with the others for 11 years and then moved when I was invited to come and become national director of the FIEC so it was very hard to leave a work that you've invested um, in in that way I'm pleased to say the church has thrived since I've left um, (laughs) has grown even even bigger has been involved in significant church planting all across Birmingham has been central to the development of something called Birmingham 2020 which has been a church planting initiative to try to either plant or revitalize 20 churches across Birmingham um, by 2020 and that's going remarkably well I think they've got 15 or 16 new churches that they've planted or started many of the people that we saw come to church in those early years perhaps some who were converted have now gone on and trained at Bible College and they've now come back to Birmingham and they're leading new churches that are there so it's been thrilling at a distance to see how the church has grown and continue to exercise a wider ministry. FIEC as you've as you've already mentioned is where you're at at the moment 
What does the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches exist to do? Well, FIC has been around since 1922. And basically, our vision is really very much the same of the vision with which FIC was started. FIC exists to help independent churches to support and encourage one another in their gospel ministry. Our great desire is for independent churches to work together to reach Britain for Christ. So um, our great task is we want to see Jesus made known in our nation. We want to see thriving gospel churches in every community. Um, and as independent churches, we recognise that we need to work together if we're to, able, if we're to be able to um, accomplish that. So the great benefit of independency is that each local church governs itself, and therefore under Christ as its head, it can work out for itself what it means to be faithful to Christ. Um, and therefore, against all the cultural pressures and maybe denominational pressures, independent churches are able to stand firm for the gospel. The disadvantage of independence is it can become isolation. So churches can be um, on their own. So what FIEC uh, seeks to do is, is provide some of the benefits of being in a wider association or denomination, but without controlling the life of our local mm. churches. So things we particularly want to work on are uh, mission and outreach and church planting. How can we encourage and support the planting of new churches into places with little gospel uh, work in them? How can we bring resources together to enable that to be possible? How can we train and raise up a next generation of leaders for churches? How can we provide care and support for church leaders in the isolated and difficult um, challenge that they face leading local churches? How can we provide practical and legal support for churches to deal with all the regulatory issues that now mm. fall on them so that's what we seek to do and there's just over 500 churches i think in the uk uh, it's just about to be three uh, sort of 600 churches 600. so in this last year we've had 33 churches join us so we're just going to go over the 600 mark since i started with fiec in 2010 we'll have grown by about 130 churches over that period of time many of which are new church plants mm. and a number of which are long established independent churches that have joined fiec because they can see that we've got a renewed gospel vision and they want to be part of that mm. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. Great to have you on board for The Profile this afternoon. This is the show where we sit down with the person to find out more about their life, faith and testimony. Today I'm speaking to John Stevens. You just heard him talk about FIEC, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. There's lots more to come from him in a moment. Just before we hear that, you can actually access many more interviews just like this on The Profile podcast. This is the podcast where every single week you will get a brand new interview with perhaps a church leader perhaps someone from the world of music or the world of sport perhaps somebody who's involved in ministry at a, at a high level or perhaps someone who is involved in craftivism that was uh, an episode just a couple of weeks ago on the profile podcast a whole variety of different people really interesting people and we want to find out what does their christian faith mean for their everyday life work and ministry. If you want to get the profile as a podcast and hear loads more interviews just like this one, please go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. And if, of course, you are already listening to this on the profile podcast, then firstly, thank you. And secondly, would you do us a massive favor and give us a rating and a review wherever you found this? It helps other people to discover the show. Lots more to come from John Stevens, so do stick around for that. He's coming up next. Good news! We've slashed the cost of subscribing to the UK's leading Christian magazine. Now you can read news from a Christian perspective and interviews with fascinating leaders for half the normal price. 
That's 12 issues of Premier Christianity magazine for less than £20. Plus, take out a subscription by the 14th of September and we'll enter you into a prize draw to win £200 worth of new Christian books. There's never been a better time to subscribe. Go to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue that has just landed in the last couple of days, and it's a really exciting one, I have to tell you. If you want to get a free sample copy of our latest edition featuring a cover story on Hillsong, just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But without any further ado, let's listen in to the second part of my interview with John Stevens. You do have some some kind of uh, distinctives uh, of the FIEC that would mark you out as being uh, different from other churches. You, you mentioned about kind of being culturally distinct and one of the plus sides of being an independent church is you're not beholden to what a denomination might decide, particularly on some issues that are quite controversial. So, for example, on um, same-sex relationships, you take a traditional Christian view on that and, and your churches would, and, they're, and because they're not part of the denomination, it wouldn't matter what other people would say. They can kind of hold the line on that, I mean, the other one that would get talked about quite a lot is uh, is your stance on men and women. You'd hold to a traditional complementarian uh, stance, which would teach that men and women are created equal but have distinct and different roles in church life. I mean, both of those things are issues on which Christians disagree, and I'm sure this isn't the first time you've had a conversation with someone who's who's brought those up. But is there a part of you that that thinks it's a bit of a shame that almost when we start talking about FIEC, they're the two things that immediately come to mind? Well, I think in the Christian world, it's not surprising that people raise those up because they are the very secondary issues that often divide Christians. But it seems to me that they are important issues. And for FIEC, they're central to our, our identity and understanding of what biblical Christianity means. So you talked about them as both being traditional Christian positions. I'd say they're, they're biblical Christian positions. And as a body of churches, our churches want to stand together on what they believe to be mm. biblical convictions. I, the, um, the, the idea of Bible believing, I mean, I noticed it uh, on a couple of, of, of different websites of groups I know you're involved in that we're a Bible believing mm. church. But the, the problem is every Christian sort of says, well, I believe the Bible. Um, isn't the issue more to do with the way you interpret the scriptures than whether you believe the scriptures? Well, of course, there are issues of how you interpret the scriptures, and all of us are in the process of seeking to interpret the scriptures and hear what they're saying. Um, I guess that what we're really saying is we think that the scriptures properly interpreted um, hold to these different positions. And I, I wouldn't put them quite at the same level. It seems to me same-sex marriage is something that is much more clearly taught against in scripture. It would seem to me that actually the Bible makes very clear from beginning to end that marriage was created by God and exclusively for a relationship between a man and a woman in um, intended lifelong union. That's actually the teaching of the Old Testament. It's the teaching of the New Testament. At the same time, the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, makes quite clear that homosexual relationships fall short of God's standards and are sinful and without repentance will lead to sort of God's judgment. Um, And that position, again, is maintained in the Old Testament. It's maintained in the New Testament, both by Jesus and by Paul. So I would say that's a, a completely consistent biblical understanding. I think you have to come up with some quite convoluted means of interpreting scripture to try to combat that. 
So personally, I think mm. that the arguments in favor of loving sort of same-sex relationships being acceptable before God is just unsustainable in the face of Scripture. And I think for lots of people who are arguing in favor of same-sex relationships today, they've changed the nature of the argument from saying that the Bible supports same-sex relationships to saying that somehow God's revelation has now moved on and that the Holy Spirit has now told us new things that aren't in the Bible and that we now know better and that therefore God is now telling us that these relationships are acceptable. Well, that challenges the whole biblical idea that the Bible is a complete and final revelation from God, and it it undermines what the Bible, it Mm. says, all the way along. So I I would say the Bible's teaching on that issue is is incredibly clear, and it's vital that evangelical Christians stand up for that fundamental truth about human sort of uh, sex and gender Mm. and and sexuality. On the women's issue, I think it's um, a little bit more complex, because in the Bible, there are lots of examples of women who are involved in ministry, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament often to a very high level. But as a group of churches, we would find it, um, again, clearly taught in Scripture, we think, that the role of elder or pastor in the life of the local church is a role that's set apart for men. We would see that being taught in um, at 1 Timothy. We'd see that being taught in 1 Corinthians. We'd see that being echoed across the New Testament. And yet at the same time, the Bible teaches the complete equality in Christ of of men and women. So so on, on women in leadership and complementarity you do see that as a, as a somewhat secondary issue uh, yes i think we see it as a secondary issue and because yeah, it's still it is still criteria though for joining yeah. fiec so could you explain okay. why 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 if it's secondary uh why it's so Im- it's still so important as a secondary issue that it would be um a deal breaker for church to try and join FIC? okay well i think we do think it's a secondary issue and that we don't see it as being a salvation issue the bible nowhere says that your beliefs on the roles of women in ministry determines your eternal destiny which is totally different from what the bible says about sex and same-sex relationships so the bible i think puts it in a separate category and so therefore it's right for us to see it in, in, in a different way so as a group of churches many of our churches would be quite happy to have fellowship and relationship with other evangelical churches that might have a different view in relation to mm-hmm. women and women's ministry right. and women yeah. women's leaders so we're not saying that that's an issue for breaking fellowship with okay. others or saying that it's a matter of salvation for mm. other people having said that for a body of churches that hold to a particular conviction conviction about women's ministry we're saying that if you want to be part of us then this is the mm-hmm. conviction that you need to uphold mm. and i think it's incredibly difficult for church groups to be able to have different positions in relation to women's ministry and leadership in churches and we see that problem in the anglican church over the appointment of women bishops and women clergy so there's a new Mm. woman uh, about to be appointed bishop of london Mm -hmm. um, and there are some churches within the diocese of london that are quite happy to accept that and there are other churches in the diocese of london that regard that as being wrong so she is able to exercise ministry in some of those churches but others would refuse to have her to come and preach or perform confirmations or, or baptisms that seems to me to be a dishonest position so within FIEC, we want to be quite clear. We've got a position that we hold to. In our churches, we believe that pastors and elders ought to be male. We don't say more than that because there are lots of uh, kind of variations on complementarianism. There are lots of other mm. views about how men and women should yes. relate. We, we don't think the Bible says more clearly than just that um, the role of pastor and elder in the life of mm. local churches ought to be a, a male role. Yeah. Oh, I, w- I wanted to ask about that, actually. I, I won't dwell on this, this subject too long because there's lots of other fascinating things to talk about. But it does strike me in this particular debate a, a couple of things. I mean, often I find those who hold any form of complementarian view 
uh, especially online these days, can be subjected to ridicule from other Christians who who seem to assume that this is some sort of sexist attitude rather than a motivation from trying to stay true to the Bible, which I think is a, is a problem for Christians if we're to really understand where each other are coming from on this. But I think more importantly than that, I sometimes wonder if if the whole issue of complementarity or complementarianism has been clouded by extremes. I mean, I can think of one particularly well-known pastor who has taught that uh, women should not be police officers because that would involve them having some kind of authority over men. And uh, I think most Christians would look at that and, and be slightly confused because they think, well, they don't see Paul's teaching as applying to the workplace and certainly police officers. Surely Paul was only talking about people in church leadership. But when you have influential and well-known pastors who are known as well-known complementarians saying that sort of thing, does it give the, the rest of people who believe this a bit of a bad name? Um, I think there is that danger. The reality is that within those who are complementarian, there's a whole spectrum of different beliefs as to what they understand that means in practice and how that works out. Even within churches of FIEC, there'd be a variety of different approaches as people try to interpret the rest of the, what the Bible teaches and how it applies to male-female relationships. At a very personal level, I, I think that um, the Bible doesn't teach what I might describe as a cultural complementarianism. I think that's a reflection of a more traditional patriarchal culture. Um, so it's not the case, it seems to me, biblically, that men and women submit uh, or women submit to men just because they're men and women just because they're women. I don't think it's the case that the Bible teaches that authority and leadership only ever vests in men because they're men. Many of the things the Bible says about women in passages that do talk about male leadership in the church or says, say about women, like, for example, that they're to be gentle, they're to be quiet, they're to be submissive. In other contexts, men are expected to be exactly like that themselves. So the idea that somehow it's of the essence of being female to be submissive and under authority and the, the essence of being male to be um, a kind of a leader exercising authority is actually, in my view, an mm. unbiblical position. Mm. It seems to me that God has created men and women um, as equal. And then there are certain structures that have been established in society by God from creation, primarily marriage and the church. The church, of course, is an outworking of marriage because the church is sort of, in a sense, the marriage of Christ to his people. And in those specific contexts, there's a, a relationship of hierarchy set up in which there's an appropriate authority and submission. But it's absolutely not the case that every woman in church is to submit to every man in church. In fact, all the men in church who are not elders are to submit to the elders of the church in exactly the same way as they, that the women within the life of the church. So they have no authority because they're male. The authority in the church is exercised by the, the elders who've been given the oversight of the church. Mm. The same is true in relation to marriage. A woman has no obligation to submit to any other man other than her own husband. Um, and in biblical context, we see situations in which there are women who exercise authority over men. So it's quite clear that there were some converted mm. female slave owners who therefore exercised authority over male slaves in virtue of that kind of position. And we might say a parallel in our circumstances, female bosses at work who exercise a right authority or female politicians and polit political leaders. So I don't think it's as simple as saying that there is kind of male authority and leadership and feminine submission mm. to that. That's a distortion, yeah. I think, of the biblical teaching. We could talk much more on this and have a really fascinating conversation, but I'd love to bring us back to um, really the heart of what FIC, FIEC is doing. We mentioned this earlier about the importance of mission and evangelism. And I'd love to know, how do you think the UK church is doing at the moment when it comes to what many Christians would regard as the central core motivations of our faith to share the gospel with others how would you say the uk church is doing on that 
It depends what you mean by the whole UK church. I mean, I think the situation we face in the UK is pretty desperate. The reality is that the best statistics would suggest that no more than about 3% of the British population of something like 64 million are born-again believers who know the Lord Jesus. When you say born-again believers, though, I mean, the statistics I've seen would would suggest about 11% of people in this country go to church. So to say only 3% are kind of true Christians is a, is a pretty negative view of most of those people turning up in church. And you'd have to question, well... What's going on there? What, why is such a big disconnect between the 3% and the 11%? Well, I think the Bible is quite clear that going to church doesn't make you a Christian. So there are plenty of churches that people will go to that aren't teaching the gospel or where people don't have a genuine personal faith in Christ that really impacts on their lives. But that's quite a, a large distinction, just, just to press you a little bit on this. I mean, that's uh, you're, saying, you're saying most of the people who go to church in this country aren't Christians? Is, is that what you're saying? Well, they're certainly not evangelical Christians who have a clear faith in Christ and a clear assurance in Christ. I mean, it's not my job to judge them. These are statistics not that I've created, but these are statistics that would be drawn from Operation World from the Evangelical Alliance in terms of the numbers of actively committed evangelical Christians in the UK. But even if you would grant that those 11% who go to church are committed Christians, mm. that would still mean that you've got something like uh, 89% of the people who do not know Christ if we take the Bible seriously, that means those 89% of the people are lost and under judgment and facing a, a, a lost eternity. And actually, the whole mission of Jesus is to reach the lost, share with them the good news of the kingdom, call them to repentance and faith so that they can be saved. So we could argue about the, mm. the difference between well, those, and those also, numbers. You, you, did, uh, you did quite rightly say earlier that um, you know, evangelical Christians don't believe that if you're not an evangelical, you're not a Christian. Uh, so so even so I'd, I'd still go back on that and I'd say are you really saying most people who go to church in this country are not a Christian leaving aside the evangelical argument for a minute I think there's probably a large number of people who are social churchgoers who don't believe the doctrines that they hear and attend church um, for reasons other than because of personal faith in Christ there are going to be amongst that group some who do have a genuine faith in Christ actually the reformers people like John Calvin Martin Luther recognised that amongst Roman Catholics there were many who were believers in the Lord Jesus even if they were being mistreated taught by their church. So it's very hard to know about those mm. unless you know everybody is an individual. Mm. But in the broad sweep of uh, those who go to church in the UK, there are many who would believe doctrines that are very contrary to scripture. They wouldn't recognize Christ as Lord in the way that that is recognized. So I mean, the essence of being a Christian is to uh, confess Christ as Lord mm -hmm. and to believe that God raised him from the dead. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a fundamental doctrinal core mm -hmm. yeah. to true Christian belief. Mm -hmm. And I think in some churches, that's not what's taught and that's not what's proclaimed. And therefore, it's difficult to believe that the people who are attending are genuinely Christian in the way that the New Testament would understand. And of course, that's actually why evangelical long for the church to be revived they actually consider it a great tragedy and a scandal that there are churches in which christ is not being proclaimed in the way that the bible presents him because they long for people to come to know christ when we look at the kind of mission field as it as it were do you do you buy the argument that our society is becoming increasingly secular and increasingly hostile to Christians? I think that probably is the reality. I think we're certainly kind of in terms of our public culture, we're no longer a Christian culture in the way that we might have been in the past. Although a Christian culture is not necessarily the same as saying that the majority of people are sort of born again living Christians. It just means that Christianity is so permeated the culture that Christian values and Christian thinking are assumed to be the norm that everybody should aspire to. But I think increasingly um, our, pop our, our culture is secular and post-Christian. So the numbers of people even identifying with Christianity in the census are dropping rapidly um, uh, every 10 years. We're obviously now a much more multi-faith uh, country. As we said, the vast majority of people have no active engagement with church 
um, uh, at all. I think I think across that picture, there's a mix of uh, views. There are some who are ideologically secular and atheist and wish to eliminate religion from life. There are others who have adopted a kind of a vague spirituality. So they'd re- reject the suggestion that they're secular. They'd want to speak about themselves as being spiritual, by which I think they largely mean they're not hardline materialists. They see more to life than just a scientific materialism. But that's not the same as biblical faith or a belief in the bi- the biblical God. So it's, it's quite a mixed picture. We have mm. some who are hardline secular, some who are committed to other religions, and others who have a vague spirituality. But I do think amongst all of those groups, there's a growing hostility towards Christianity, um, particularly over key cutting-edge issues within society. So human sexuality would be one of those. I think in the past, Christianity would have been perceived as being a good thing. Um, for society, even by those who didn't believe it. I think now Christianity is in danger of being seen as a bad thing, um, uh, particularly a kind of an evangelical Mm. Christianity that holds to biblical teaching because it's seen as being out of step with um, a society that wants to be embracing and celebrating of all different kinds Mm. of lifestyles. And Christianity, which believes that human beings are fundamentally sinful and therefore lots of aspects of our lifestyle is, is wrong and needs to be repented of, that will not be popular in a society that no longer views humanity in that way. Do you think some Christians are still kind of catching up with this new reality and haven't quite yet grasped just how far uh, much of our culture has gone from what would have previously been regarded as traditional Christian beliefs? I think there are many people who are Christians, particularly older Christians, who haven't realised the extent to which society as a whole has changed. Um, They can see some of the pressure points, and, and I think that for many of them, they, for quite a long time, have thought that that's an extreme elite position that's being pushed by a progressive liberal elite. And they haven't realised the extent to which that has captured the majority of the population. And Christians often live in a relatively small bubble of church and the Christians that they engage with. And so they don't perhaps appreciate the extent to which people around them have radically changed their way of thinking. So I think a, a fundamental um, uh, moment at which the reality came home was the vote on same-sex marriage. So I think many Christians got actively behind a massive campaign to try to um, urge government not to introduce same-sex marriage. One of the largest petitions ever gathered was gathered, but it made no difference at all, and Parliament voted overwhelmingly in favour of introducing same-sex marriage. And I think for many that was a moment of realisation that society had had changed. And, and it's not just the elites. The elites may have driven some of those changes, but through the media, through the news, through the soap operas, the kind of the worldview of a kind of an anti-Christian secularism and spirituality has now become the norm by which most people are living. Mm. And the vast majority of ordinary people are living lives that are inconsistent with the moral teaching of the Christian faith. And therefore, it's not surprising that society as a whole has fundamentally changed. And I do think that Christians have been very slow to catch up on that and to realise the very limited political power they have because we've become such a tiny minority within our culture. There's still quite a big push in some quarters for Christians to become more politically involved. I can think of a number of campaigns where Christians are saying, look, we need to we need to be there, we need to stand up in the political sphere, and we need to encourage more Christians to become MPs. And um, we can't just shout from the sidelines and sign petitions. We really need to, to get involved. Would you agree with that kind of an approach? Well, I would completely agree with that. I think that uh, at, while we have opportunity, and one of the advantages of a democratic plural society is we do have opportunity to engage in that political process, is we 
need to be taking every opportunity that we can get. And it's absolutely right that we want people in public life and in politics who are acting for and speaking for Christ. Most importantly, what we need is a prophetic voice um, bringing Christian truth to bear on our public culture. I think um, uh, the question really is to what extent we were likely to succeed and make a difference. So I think I think we need a realism about whether we're going to be listened to and whether those campaigns mm. are going to succeed yes. in terms of bringing about changes we might want. It, Whereas yeah. actually their purpose is much more to be able to speak Christian truth into that public culture. Right. Yeah, because it seems to me that a lot of evangelical Christians now might be known for running food banks, for doing street pastoring, for giving debt advice. I mean, almost every church I can think of, certainly every evangelical church I can think of, seems to be involved in at least one of those kinds of projects. And the whole, it's been called the sort of social action revolution, seems to have hit the church. And people have talked about, isn't it great? We've kind of refound this social conscience that others like Wilberforce back in his day seemed to have and this is this is a thing that's being celebrated but is the danger with all that that evangelicals become known for doing good works and less for the good message that they're preaching? Well I think there's a great opportunity to engage with society in some ways some of those opportunities have actually come about as a result of austerity and the fact that the state has no longer been able to deliver those services in the way that it did in the past so Christians unsurprisingly have grasped the moment of opportunity and I do think there's a sort of a very mixed picture so at the public level of public culture Often there's a, a, a sort of a, a, an opposition to Christianity, particularly its views on issues of human sexuality. At a very local level, it is the Christians who are often helping and aiding um, the poor. And many churches are hugely effective. So uh, ch- food banks have been hugely significant. Cat projects have been hugely sinif- significant. But actually where I've seen those done well, they've been done by churches that are also wanting to share the good news of Jesus. Mm. And actually churches that are engaging in their communities and seeking to meet people's needs and taking opportunities to them speak of Jesus and explain that they do this because of their Christian faith many of them are seeing people come to faith in Christ Mm. so whilst at the same time the big picture is that Christians are a very small minority and that many churches that are non-evangelical are in absolutely rapid decline so liberal churches that don't preach the gospel are rapidly dying they've got aging congregations and over the next 20 years many of them may well disappear completely evangelical churches that are preaching the gospel but are also engaging with their community and seeking to reach out in a loving and welcoming way are seeing people come to faith in Christ and are bucking the trend and are either maintaining their numbers or they're sort of slowly increasing no one's seeing very rapid gospel growth but most most churches are seeing some gospel growth as they seek to hold firm to the gospel but also engage with their communities We've, we've talked quite a lot about some of the, the themes that you tackle in your book. It's knowing our times, how British culture impacts our mission in, in trying to work through this kind of new reality that, that Christians are facing. I want to bring it back a moment to, to your, your ministry uh, with FIEC. I'd love to know what's the kind of big picture plan for you in the kind of year ahead or even beyond that as you look at where British culture is at, where you look at the, the nearly 600 churches that, that you have some responsibility for in helping What's the big picture long-term view on how you can encourage uh, the churches you're working with? Within FIEC, we've been wanting to try to be both gospel faithful, cultural contemporary, and also generous to others. So many people may have a perception of FIEC as being rigid, uh, traditional, conservative, cultural churches. I think that's a picture that was true in the past, but is less true now than it has been. Uh, Many of our churches have recognised that the gospel doesn't demand a particular cultural mode of expression and are wanting to combine a biblical faithfulness with a, a, a contemporary 
temporary desire to want to connect with culture and connect with people, which is why many of our churches um, are growing. Um, we want to help those churches to continue to grow and particularly to plant new churches. So I've been thrilled that at the moment a new FIEC church is being planted about once a month. So we're seeing something like 12 new churches started here in a whole variety of contexts from city centres to estates to rural areas. So as, as churches want to do more and want to reach out, um, we want to encourage them to do that and do, do even more of that. I think some of our big concerns uh, from an evangelical perspective are the reality is that British evangelicalism as a whole is still more focused on the south of England. It's stronger there numerically. It's stronger there financially. Evangelicalism is much weaker in um, areas that are more deprived um, uh, further north in the country. So one of the things we're wanting to do over the next um, couple of years is to focus on how can we encourage more gospel work into the areas of the country where at the moment gospel work is um, uh, sort of not as strong as it ought to be. So we're thinking particularly about how do we encourage church planting and church growth in urban deprived areas? How do we um, develop connections with um, sort of multi-ethnic contexts? I think British culture is changing. The ethnicity of Britain is changing and the church is yet to catch up with that. So I was encouraged by recent FIEC statistics across our churches. About 16% of attenders are from a non-white background, which compares with 14% as the national average. Mm. Recent statistics in the Church of England, about 7% of their attenders are from a non-white background. But we all face a massive challenge of how do we engage with a a sort of a very changing Mm. demographic in the UK. And we want to build links with churches from um, other ethnic groups and then think about how can we plant into the many multi-ethnic contexts that may not be being reached for Christ. And then I think rural areas are often neglected. So rural ministry is incredibly difficult because sustaining a church when you've got quite small populations is very hard. Mm. How are we going to bring the gospel back to rural areas Mm. of the country? So those are major areas that we're working on. It's really interesting to hear you talk about how kind of FIEC has been perceived. I think you used the word conservative in there. And I was going to ask you how you feel about... um, being sometimes described or known as a conservative mm-hmm. evangelical but but just on top of that i wanted to to bring in the the kind of issue of charismatic christianity because again when yeah. a lot of people think of fiec they'd think oh they're non-charismatic yeah. and what people would mean by that often is is everything from spiritual gifts of perhaps not uh, not believing that god speaks in in any way outside of the bible so would be hesitant to, to talk about prophecy in the context of me giving you a word of knowledge right now to use the kind of christian jargon uh, everything from that to oh they wouldn't lift their hands during a a worship song which i know is an incredibly broad uh, overview of charismatic but nevertheless that's how people use that word and they'd say oh, fic are not really in that place so could you speak to those those couple of things and where you're currently you. at there well, let me talk first about being conservative i don't particularly like the word conservative i don't find it helpful it sounds backward looking it sounds traditional one of our challenges is how we deal with many issues in society is that the, the language is often against us so the language of progressive the language of liberal sounds so much more attractive and forward looking <laughs> So, um, uh, uh, but at one level, we're left with that language. And yes. Actually, I once heard Terry Virgo say that I'm a conservative evangelical in that I want to conserve what the Bible says is true. And in that sense, I'm happy to be a conservative evangelical, um, basically because I think it's about maintaining fidelity to the scriptures. But it mustn't be a backward-looking traditionalism or a, a cultural mm. conservatism that, that sort of sees Christianity as being worked out in a particular cultural form. I think for many of our churches in the past, um, Christianity became associated with preserving a kind of 1950s culture um, and churches could get stuck in that and they thought that gospel faithfulness meant not just 
keeping to the gospel truths, but also to maintaining that culture. Mm. So conservative is not a word I'd particularly want. One of the challenges is nobody's come up with a much better word <laughs> to um, describe it. I guess biblical Christianity, gospel Christianity are all ways of trying to yeah. capture that. Um, so on, on the conservative, that's the issue. In relation to the kind of charismatic movement and what FIEC is, FIEC mm. historically was always quite a broad group of evangelical churches. Our founder, E.J. Paul Connor, had a very broad gospel vision in which he wanted Christians to be united despite their differences. I think what happened in the, re- the relation to the charismatic movement, you have to, to some extent, go back sort of in history and how it burst uh, onto the scene. So the charismatic movement really began to gain traction um, uh, in the 1960s um, in the UK. And at that point, the vast majority of churches and indeed the vast majority of FIEC churches would have been cessationist in their theology. So their conviction would have been the gifts of the spirit finished at the end of the apostolic age. So it wasn't surprising that when people started saying that there was this new baptism in the spirit, that they were speaking in tongues, that they were exercising prophecy, the only category many people had at that particular point was to conclude that that must be false. So if your theological framework was cessationist, Mm -hmm. really you had no no option in relation to the charismatic movement Mm -hmm. uh, 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 as to judge it either as a human aberration or as worse than that. Now, I think what happened is over time, people did rather more theological work at looking at the Bible. So I think particularly people like Wayne Grudem, people like Don Carson, went back and looked at the scriptures themselves. And I think although Christians will now have a spectrum of views on on the issue of charismatic Mm -hmm. gifts, um, they modeled a a kind of a biblical continuationism. So um, I personally would take the view that the New Testament doesn't teach that gifts automatically cease at the end of the apostolic period, which then leads to a greater ability to be able to relate to people with charismatic experience. Mm. And so in many ways, I think there's then been a coming together between those who would come from a more conservative background and those from a more charismatic background. Um, So I think the majority of FIEC pastors and leaders, particularly the younger generation, would have in in principle a continuationist theology. So does that mean that um, you could walk into an FIEC church and uh, hear someone at the front give a, give a word of knowledge, say that I believe God's told me there's someone in, in here with a bad shoulder and God wants to heal it? Could Is this now okay. happening in FIEC churches? Well, uh, in a very small number of FIEC, I mean, FIEC churches um, take a spectrum of views. You have some churches that still in conscience would be cessationist in mm-hmm. their understanding. You would have some churches that would be quite charismatic in their practice. Right. In fact, there's a group of FIEC churches that have a more charismatic practice that are organized a small conference for churches in FIEC that would be more charismatic to investigate what that means and to encourage them. And we're delighted that they're going to do that. Um, Once the argument moves from cessationism or charismatic Mm. to a more continuationist position, actually, you start having different questions being asked. So, for example, you talked about words of knowledge. The question then becomes, what is a word of knowledge? And I suspect you probably wouldn't have a word of knowledge in quite the way that you would describe it, but not because of an in-principled objection to the charismatic movement, mm-hmm. but actually more because of a question of whether that's really what word of knowledge means in right. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. So tongues would be the other more obvious example. Would you see tongues being spoken openly in FIEC churches? Mm. The answer is in not many. Mm. Um, uh, but the reason for that, again, would be because of looking at 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 and what the Bible teaches about how tongues should be used. Because Paul's pretty clear clear that tongues should never be used in church if they're not interpreted so that everybody can say amen to the praise or the Mm -hmm. prayer that's being given. Again, looking at it carefully, 
tongues in the New Testament are not a kind of prophecy given in a strange language. They're actually a prayer offered up to God that can be put into perfectly ordinary language that everybody else can say amen to. So FIEC churches that would not be cessationist would want to be biblically careful about the way that gifts are being used. So tongues would be much more used as a private uh, gift Mm -hmm. or in a small group context rather than in a public um, gathering. But FIEC churches have always had a strong doctrine of the work of the Spirit, Mm. both in terms of um, conversion, but also particularly in preaching. So there is lots of overlap between a a kind of a nonconformist view of preaching and how the charismatic movement understands the nature of prophecy. I suspect many of our churches would see something akin to prophecy happening when the word is opened and then applied to people. So we might not distinguish Mm. it in quite the same way but certainly would have a very high view of the way that the Spirit is speaking through his word into the immediate contemporary situation. Do you ever wonder what your life would look like now had you not had those conversations with those Christians at university and become a Christian? Actually, I was preaching about that on church on Sunday morning. I was preaching on 1 Peter chapter 4 about the costs of following Christ and what it might mean for you. I was saying um, we found ourselves kind of watching Suits, which is an American television program about kind of law, which we we love. Um, And um, I've enjoyed watching it, but there are moments at which I watch it at which I think that could have been me. (laughs) So um, before I I won't ask you which character... before I went into a kind of Christian ministry and gave up the law, I had two offers for jobs at um, kind of big city law firms. I had a potential for a scholarship to go and train for the bar. So at one level, that was the career j- trajectory. So I, I, I kind of occasionally watch that and I have a moment of thinking that might have been where my life had ended up. But at the same time, when I then look at those characters, I kind of think to myself, I'm so glad that that's not where I've mm. ended up and that Christ had mercy upon me and mm. I was rescued from what in effect is um, in their examples a kind of a a selfish and self-indulgent life that is often deeply abusive of other people. So I know that's not true. For that, it's perfectly possible to be a godly Christian lawyer. <laughs> sure, um, but that's not what I There's would have been if Christ had not saved There's me. There's not many of them on suits. No. It would appear at times. Um, so, what, what's been the best day of your ministry and the worst day? Um, oh gosh, that's a really very difficult question. Um, the worst day of my ministry is dealing with really difficult leadership issues in the life of church. So um, I think uh, churches are still full of fallen people and leaders don't always get on. I think leadership crises and disagreement is deeply painful when it's friends and people that you've worked alongside that you have deep fallings out with. Mm. Um, uh, I would think the worst days of ministry have been involved um, in that kind of situation. Um, it's difficult to describe the best day of ministry because at one level um, you regularly see people converted and I think that um, are kind of rejoicing with the angels that somebody has been saved. Um, at one level every single conversion ought to cause us to re- rejoice in that in that way. Um, I think having planted a couple of churches, having seen those churches firmly established and having seen people come and join and begun the work has been thrilling to see others sort of involved in that ministry. So I don't think... I could talk about any single day as being the greatest Mm -hmm. day of ministry. I think that it's seeing the ongoing regular growth of the kingdom of God as the word is preached, as people are converted, as they're trained and discipled. That's a great answer. Well, sadly, we're out of time, but thank you so, so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
You're listening to Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. That was my interview with John Stevens from FIEC. I do hope you enjoyed that. If you want to hear more interviews just like that, why not check out The Profile as a podcast, meaning you can listen to past shows with all sorts of interesting people and get a brand new interview direct to wherever you get your podcast every single week of the year. Go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile to download The Profile podcast. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. It's been great to have you. Coming up next here on Premier Christian Radio is Premier Playback. We'll see you next week.